down, keep down, he muttered. The night is full of eyes. Two men wait thy coming behind the horse trucks. They will shoot thee at thy lying down, because there is a price on thy head. I'm Bob. I'm Zach. This is Genre. We are two guys who used to work at a bookstore in Portland, Oregon. We used to talk about books for a living. Now we only talk about them for fun. We are reading old genre and pulp fiction for the first time, exploring what makes them so fantastic. Just a reminder, we have an email address where you can ask us questions or recommend your favorite books. Talk to us at genrepodcast at gmail.com. The theme for the month of October was horror. The theme for November is spy novels. This week, we have one of Zach's books, Kim, by Rudyard Kipling. So, Zach, why this book? Kim! Uh, so, I had heard that this book lays the foundation for like most of the tropes and, and the concerns that, that show up in more familiar spy novels. Way back in episode three, we read The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. Both of these stories, you know, they deal in deception and political intrigue, and, and they really demand that the reader pay close attention to the dialogue and specific turns of phrase in the interactions that happen between the characters. But in terms of their setting, the world that these two books occupy, it really couldn't be further apart. Right, because Secret Agent is set in the turn of the century London, and everyone is British, and there might be one guy who is either... French, German, Russian, or British. But what is Kim's setting? So Kim takes place in India, but the India underneath British control, and its borders are apparently at risk of some kind of interference from Russian or French interests. So in The Secret Agent by Conrad, it finds our hero, the, the dirty Verloc. You know, he's undercover. He's infiltrating anarchist groups in London on behalf of this shadowy foreign government. But in Kim... It's really different. We have a teenage boy, and he's like undergoing an identity crisis as he's pretending to be like multiracial, and he's assuming the identity of, of a of a schoolboy, and as well as like a traveling monk apprentice, as he's spying for like British interests. But how did you like the book? I thought Kim was a lot of fun. Kim as a character is just a very likable kid, and in the book he's called the friend of all the world. And he is. He's kind to everyone. He's often a little tricky, but he's still true to people and kind. And so I really liked Kim's perspective on India, describing different settings. And I also liked the the narrative structure, the kind of coming of age element as he goes from wild kid to this spiritually enlightened and professional spy. Joseph Conrad was the author of our first spy book. And who is the author of Kim? Okay, so Rudyard Kipling, born in Mumbai, India in 1865, he he clearly has this very romantic view of the the British rule of India, and you see this throughout the book. He spent he spent the early part of his life back and forth going between England and India, and I think that his really rich and detailed descriptions of India come from his own memories of the place. I mean, every page is overflowing of these really ornate descriptions of streets, people, and like most of all, like the language. But you you just watched a documentary on Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling. Did you see anything in his life that like jumped out as 
cool or interesting? Yeah, his life, like you said, was, was pretty back and forth. Well, he at least moved to England, came back to India, and moved back to England again. And he spent his, his very early years, very like the character Kim, running around India and spending time with his Indian nanny. And he actually spoke Hindi better than he spoke English growing up as a kid. He only spoke English with his parents, but all his friends, they spoke Hindi. But things were pretty complicated in India because English people were pretty inflexible, generally. They did not adapt to or appreciate Indian culture. But the Kiplings were a little bit different. Rudyard's father was a museum curator in India and a champion of Indian art. The Kiplings, though they were English and therefore imperialists in India, they actually they clashed with the kind of English culture going on there at the time because they were resistant to that English inflexibility. Oh, that, that's that's super interesting. I'm actually really reminded of that drummer boy in, I think it was chapter six. He like throws around the N-word a lot. I think I think Kipling did a lot of work to make this, this English kid be this like loathsome pig-headed character. I mean, not like, not like, being a 20th century reader looking back at this 19th century book and thinking the character is is kind of loathsome. But I think Kipling actually intended to have at least one English character in there be this like openly racist person, particularly just to serve as a foil to the less repugnant English characters that are running around, like Kim. And then also like this other character, you said how his father was a museum curator. There was also a museum curator in this book. And this guy, when, when he sent the monk on his way, he gave him his own pair of glasses as a parting gift. And, and, and the Lama keeps coming back to this small act of kindness throughout the book. Here's what he says, quote, a feather, a very feather upon the face. The old man turned his head delightedly and wrinkled up his nose. How scarcely do I feel them? How clearly do I see? This museum curator, or the, as the Lama calls him, the keeper of images at the Wonder House, was allegedly basically Rudyard's father, just described to a T. When he gives the Lama his glasses and says, quote, Suffer me now to acquire merit. We be craftsmen together, thou and I. End quote. We start Kim out with this example of a very decent Englishman. And, of course, we meet the drummer boy and a few other Englishmen who are, well, very assured in their superiority. Yeah, come to think of it, we've, we've already locked down on two examples of British people in India, and they, they couldn't really be further apart. I think the, the drummer boy and the keeper of the images at the Wonder House, as he calls them, the museum curator, they're really supposed to be the opposite extremes of British behavior in India. One's openly hostile, the other benevolent. Both are clearly in positions of social power. But I do think that from your quote up there, the Lama clearly identifies himself as being in some kind of analogous position to the museum curator. And I feel like that's kind of important. Like he's he's like a he's a secular holy man is what Kipling is trying to portray this curator as. Yeah, the keeper of the wonder house. Sounds like a secular holy man. And it's nice that they they trade glasses. You know, it's the glass that they look out from and see the world from. And that they have the same prescription. They just happen to have the same prescription. 
and this delightful moment where they both get to look out of each other's glasses. Those characters are analogized in a nice way, especially when the museum curator is Kipling's father, his English father. The llama kind of becomes Kim's non-English father. And I think this is kind of the, the same tightrope that Rudyard is walking while growing up in India, because when he returned as a teenager to Lahore, which is today not in India, but in Pakistan, Kim was, sorry, not Kim, Kipling was spending the day around English military officers who just entertained themselves with polo, had tea, etc. But then he would be able to sneak off at night and go and hang around Indian nightlife. This is when he's in his teens. Kim similarly has to negotiate being taken taken out of his life as a friend of the Lama and then go into the new military, the English military life and the, the new schoolboy life. The Lama, though, recognizes that power does come with this English education. And so he then, even though he's very sad to lose Kim, he insists that Kim go and pursue this education. And Kim, of course, is also reluctant to leave his friend, his father figure, and his old life behind. Kim, throughout the book, feels these different identities going on inside him. And then this will often relate to his changing social position in different situations. I'm really, really interested in this thread of Kim feeling these different identities. But the more we talk about Kipling as a person, the more it feels like he's actually stuffing his childhood, or at least like this idealized Peter Pan vision of his childhood into the the story of Kim. I think so. I think it seems like that because Kim starts off as a very young character, maybe around the same age that Rudyard was when he was first sent back to England. And when Rudyard and his sister are sent back, I think he's six and she's four and they're sent to this just... Their, their parents thought it was fine. They They saw an ad in the paper of this boarding school, sent them there, and it was just awful. Like they were, they were locked in the closet if they misbehaved for a whole day. Sometimes they didn't go with, you know, they went without food. Terrible time. So it seems like maybe Kim could be this kind of Peter Pan alternative personal history because it's the same age that Kipling was. So it's maybe if he hadn't gone back to that hellhole in England, this maybe would have been his life staying in India. I'm thinking that because, of course, when I think about my alternative personal histories, it always ends up with me becoming a spy. That's what I always think about. So maybe that's just me thinking too much into the character. But let's talk about some more of these characters in Kim. So who do we have, Zach? Well, we already talked about Kim a lot. So we haven't really talked about the Teshu Lama, who's this traveling Tibetan monk, and he's searching for something called the River of the Arrow. And this river is going to wash all of his sins away and, and give him enlightenment. Anyways, he takes Kim on as his understudy, and their travels together are really what drives this plot forward. Who else do we have? We've got Maboob Ali, who is our first hint at Secret Service. Kim has already done tons of favors for him as a kid, delivering secret messages to other Secret Service members. Of course, Kim didn't know what he was doing. He was just helping out his old buddy, Mahbub Ali. But as we read on, we find out Mali Ali is an undercover agent posing as a horse breeder. Yeah, we also get Huri Babu, who is, he's in the intelligence service, and he's actually Kim's direct superior. He's really portrayed as this, like, bumbling kind of guy, and Kim even asks, 
how comes it that this man is one of us? End quote. He, he's, he's like kind of an in-between guy. He's born in Bengal, but he's really devoted to the British cause. He's like, he's with them all the way until the end, under disguise as like this common travel guide when they finally meet the baddies of the book who are like the French and Russian secret agents. We have a, a couple UK characters I'm just going to lump together. We have the Irish priest and the, the English officer, Father Victor and Officer Bennett. And they are the ones who discover Cam early on and find out that his father was a member of their military. So these two are then responsible for sending Kim off to school. And then one more UK character who is a little more important than them is named Crichton. He's also an officer and he then kind of sees Kim through his education up to becoming a spy. There's so many other characters in this book, but they just, they have smaller and smaller degrees of importance. Like the Kulu woman who who revives him back to health at various points in the book, or the drummer boy and the museum curator who, who we already mentioned. But then there's also a few different other spies who they meet along the way, as well as his like almost was love interest with Lizbeth that I'm sure we'll talk about later. You know, thinking about it now, I have a feeling that maybe every character we run into could be a spy. There's some characters that seem to have nothing. <laughs> They're just strange characters that they meet on their journey early on. And one I really like is the old lady who the llama continually complains about because she talks too much. He's like, I can't think. She just keeps talking. But then I really like old soldier and he's super minor, but he takes Kim and the llama to the big road. He's basically a guide for a short part of the journey. And throughout, he sings old military songs and he, he carries an illegal sword. He's not supposed to carry a sword, but he still carries it with he and the llama. They, they make jokes about being old and having bad joints, but he, he has this real swagger to him and he just walks like an old military man. But then Kim looks at him because he knows that he's not supposed to have a sword. And Kim says, why the sword? And then Kipling describes the old soldier. He says, quote, The old soldier looked as abashed as a child interrupted in his game of make-believe. <laughs> I love old soldier. He's still pretending. Yeah, this book is uh, this book is for sure just sprawling. Okay, so I'm a little bit scared to give a plot summary, but I think we better give it a shot. So we start with Kim. He's living an orphaned, street-savvy kind of life. He, he's actually British. But he's mistaken by almost everyone for being a local Indian person because he speaks in the vernacular and, I don't know, I guess he's like cultivated the look. But he gets a task from Mabub Ali to deliver a coded message to the head of British intelligence in India. So he sets off with his new friend, the Tibetan monk, along the Grand Trunk Road, which is actually still around today in case anyone was looking for some hashtag travel goals. I'm in. <laughs> so the, the llama and Kim, they, they keep going and they discover this army regiment on the move. Quickly, the members of this army recognize Kim. They say, Pip, Pip, you're English. And then they find his papers, which Kim always carries with him. And it identifies him as Irish. His his father was in the Irish army, identified with the British. So this regiment is his father's old regiment. They take Kim and they, they send him to school, which he absolutely hates. Kim rebels for a long time, gets into a lot of trouble. But then the Lama insists on paying for his tuition to make sure Kim completes his education. And so Kim then, throughout this, undergoes this transformation from an Indian street kid to the son of the British military. 
So at school, Kim learns Latin and French, and he learns how to map cities using surveying equipment and how to how to count distances by just simply counting his paces from from one point to the next. Kim more or less learns everything an upper class English boy would learn, along with his like special spy lessons, which have like great moments of him like resisting hypnosis or memorizing an environment or like a collection of assorted objects. And things like learning to identify the make of someone's character just by just by like glancing at them. He really becomes this like master of disguise type character. The ultimate spy. And after all this this training and mastery, Kim's secret service handler, Hari Babu, allows Kim to accompany the Lama once again because the Lama wants to start the journey and find the river of the arrow. Kim is gonna go along with him and Hari Babu kind of says to Kim, while you're there, see if you can get some information. The Russians, there's some Russian agents hanging around the Himalayas. So Kim and the Lama, in their travels, bump into these guys, kind of with the help of Babu. And in a skirmish with them, there is this kind of classic accidental luggage switch. Kim loses his suitcase full of just souvenirs, random stuff. And in this skirmish, obtains the Russian's suitcase containing a whole mess of precious intelligence. Kim and the Lama then drag this suitcase through the desert, nearly killing themselves from exhaustion. But the Lama finally finds his river, and Kim finally becomes a full-blown spy. Yeah, you know, I'm completely shocked that we managed to squeeze the entirety of Kim into about a minute, but we did it. That's Kim. Well, we did have to cut quite a bit. It's worth the read. There's so many fun characters, and the descriptions are brilliant, going from different village to different village, different city to city. And in in your bit of summary, you mentioned some of the things that feel very spy-like. And I want to talk about the spy elements of this novel, including Kim's training. Like you said, he has to learn detail. It's almost like getting his brain to work like Sherlock Holmes's brain and also learning how to master disguise. So what did you think of these education, these these training passages? Yeah, you know, they felt cinematic to me. I mean, I, I guess the whole book really feels cinematic in a sense. So maybe that's kind of a strange thing to say. But the way the way that it covers this like huge expanse of time and space, and it, it really captures everything in its lens. Like his super secret spy training is like, it feels like something that we see in like every superhero go through at some point in movies that are that are released today. Yeah, you just put you you throw Kim running up some stairs and you put Eye of the Tiger in the background and it's the perfect training montage. You know, it's Rocky punching the meat, drinking the eggs, etc. Kim stands out though as a special candidate as far as being a potential spy because and he knows India well. And like a spy, he can blend in wherever he goes because he knows all the customs. He knows how to do things. Beyond that, they also the, the, the spy handlers, the people who want to train Kim, they also recognize in him that he is very cunning. He's developed this because he's a street orphan and he needs to beg for food. He needs to find shelter. So he's he knows how to manipulate every situation while still being beloved everywhere he goes. So he's kind of the perfect candidate for this. And so they bring him into school. They start him training. At first, he's a total rebel, 
but he still learns everything that's required of him. And after all of the boring English school stuff, he gets to start the real spy training. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that this isn't like the kind of story where someone becomes like like a savant out of just being like nothing. Or like I think of like the Princess Diaries where like you take off her glasses and give her a makeover and she's like a royal stunner, you know. Kim starts off knowing multiple languages. He we see multiple examples of him interacting with and slyly manipulating all kinds of people, like different cultures, different religions, like all, all these different people. He seems to he's he's lived his life among them, so he already knows them. And he shows that he can withhold sensitive information and really gather his own intelligence, leveraging it. I think really to his own advantage, he he seems to have like a like an eye for how to do this, a sense for it. I'm thinking of that time when he's asked to deliver the obviously coded message concerning a horse. He says, quote, a white stallion, which I have sold to an officer upon the last time I returned from the passes. The pedigree of the white stallion was not fully established. So the message to that officer will be the pedigree of the white stallion is fully established. By this will he know that thou comest from me. He will then say, What proof hast thou? And thou wilt answer, Mabub Ali has given me the proof. So when we get when we get these moments like this, Kim knows, the reader knows, when they're talking about the pedigree of the horse, they're really speaking in code about just something else. Once Kim figures out that what this means is that war is coming. He uses that information to gain favor with the members of the army regiment when he meets them. And these people, they're they're absolutely shocked and impressed when his like prophecies, they come true the next day. The same code comes back at the end when Kim is sent out on his first official spy mission. Hurry Babu tells Kim a little of the nature of his mission and that it concerns the pedigree of a white stallion. Quote, still, says Kim. That was finished long ago. Babu says, quote, When everyone is dead, the great game is finished. Not before. Listen to me till the end. There were five kings who prepared a sudden war three years ago, when thou wast given the stallion's pedigree by Mabub Ali. Upon them, because of that news and air they were ready, fell our army. Let's talk about the great game a little more. I feel like that's a concept which, as far as I know originates in this book, but the idea really lives on much, much longer in the the popular imagination. The Great Game is the term for the century-long fight between Britain and Russia over claiming Afghanistan as territory. Watson in Sherlock Holmes comes back from that same war in the first Sherlock Holmes story, The Study in Scarlet. But after Kim, yeah, the Great Game politics as well as just situations similar to this with two strong parties trying to take a third party becomes a sort of genre in its own right i think i'm imagining like all of india as a giant risk board or like a like a never-ending spy versus spy comic coming from mad magazine i think that even if the great game ended the idea of great powers continually fighting and outmaneuvering each other is is really in on the popular imagination like you said there's this great quote which you already read, but, quote, when everyone is dead, the great game is finished, not before, end quote. 
So when we read future spy novels, I'm going to keep an eye out for echoes of this kind of like, I don't know, like almost cosmic struggle between global powers that's that's bigger than any one individual's life. Hmm, yeah, good use of cosmic. I think uh, similar to the cosmicism we see in Cthulhu, Lovecraft's horror, or Pennywise the Clown in It. In spy novels, then, I think we have this international warfare as the backdrop, like you said, almost a cosmicism. And I think we will see more of this, especially when we're reading Bond, maybe if we read Mission Impossible. But beside these spy elements in Kim, besides the international intrigue, there is a lot of small or personal growing up. And it kind of feels like a building's Roman, full of full of these colorful characters, like the old soldier or like the queen who talks too much. And in this way, this book, Kim, reminds me a little bit of a picaresque, which is the genre we found when we read Pinocchio. Yeah, I mean, I think if we were going to try to read this book as only spy fiction, we'd really have to willfully ignore so many sections of this book. There's really a lot going on. There's there's the coming of age, buildings Roman aspect, but there's also the the Lama's spiritual enlightenment journey, which is actually quite central to this book. But I think your read of it being a picaresque is actually also really interesting. For people who don't remember, the picaresque picaresque literature, it's it's often episodic in nature. Usually there's not a lot of character development happening, but rather we get a kind of trickster hero always getting into outrageous situations and escaping through wit and guile. Pinocchio reads like this, and other famous examples include Candide by Voltaire or Don Quixote. But I feel like this book fights back just a little bit from being pure picaresque. But I guess before we talk about that, let's let's start off with what about this book captures that picaresque feeling? Hmm. To me, I think the the initial structure of, hey, let's go on an adventure together and getting off track constantly or following others when you make friends and finding new towns, new situations, and just, like you said, episodic kind of strange experiences. Same for Pinocchio, same for Don Quixote, same for Kim. But one thing I think is really interesting that Pinocchio and Kim share, especially, is this situational lying or dishonesty. In lying, the characters are kind of opposite, or the narratives, I guess, are opposite. Because Pinocchio, when he lies, his nose grows. It's very obvious. But the book is supposed to teach him not to lie. But in Kim... Kim is lying to either, you know, professionally conceal certain information as a spy or as a kid to conceal the truth of his situation to get a little more food or a little bit better shelter. And he learns, most importantly, is to not lie to himself about who he is. So it's different. Pinocchio is never lie. Kim is never lie to yourself. But lying still gets them into all the all of these into trouble or all of these strange situations and they they are sometimes adventurous they're sometimes interesting and there's always fun characters in any of them pinocchio lies and makes bad choices and these wind him up in a puppet circus or he he also gets turned into a donkey and eventually eaten by a giant shark and it's because of lie after lie or lie and opportunity combined after lie and opportunity and kim he 
He's kind of lying, but he's really more exaggerating or concealing, really to help himself and the llama. So he gets a free train ticket because they need one. He kind of lies to do this. He lies a little bit to get meals for him and his friend. The narrative as far as how it considers the lie feels very different as far as Pinocchio and Kim. And in this way, I think we have both books being picaresque because even though lying is a little bit different morally in these books, it still gets them into thrilling adventures. Well, I think I think Kipling seems like he's looking quite positively on Kim's lying. I mean, there's a sense that Kim would not be the, the, the super secret agent that he is if he wasn't so good at deceiving people, if he wasn't so good at dressing up at being different characters, different people, different ages, different races, and and fooling everyone around him as to what his true identity was. So I agree that lies function in this like central way of moving the plot forward, but for Pinocchio, it's always negative. And, and for Kim, I, I think it ends up quite well for him. Yeah. And you can see that the narratives are opposites. When you said that they lying is totally different in each book, they do propel you into the adventure, though. They do move the plot forward. But as far as the character arc, like you said, it's essential for Kim to lie because he gets employed to do something very important for his country. He lies for the betterment of his country. But Pinocchio is the exact opposite. The more he lies, yes, the more he gets into fun adventure, but the more he lies, the further he gets away from his goal of becoming a real boy or a good boy, as Carlo Collodi would want. Yeah, yeah. You know, the lying isn't the only thing that's really moving this plot forward because we got we got a we got a MacGuffin in this story. The llama is searching for the river of the arrow. Now, what is the river of the arrow? So it is a mythic story told in Buddhist lore that when Buddha was a young man, he was searching for a wife, but everyone said, you're too weak, Buddha, you're too weak. So they gave him these strength trials. First, they give him a bow, but the Buddha was so strong that it actually broke the bow. So then they gave him a bow that's so strong that it, it, it doesn't bend. And quote, and overshooting all other marks, the arrow passed far and far beyond sight. At last it fell, and where it touched the earth, there broke out a stream, which presently became a river. End quote. So here is the Lama talking, quote, Oh, it was made by our Lord God Buddha, you know, and if you wash there, you are washed away from all your sins and made as white as cotton wool. End quote. The thing you said, Zach, about the Buddha being too strong or too weak and the bow being too strong or too weak reminds me a little bit of Odysseus returning home because none of the suitors could ever string his bow. And only when Odysseus returns, he is the only person alive strong enough to string the bow and shoot the arrow through all the axe heads. Right. So they're in search of this mythic river. It it may exist. It may not exist. More likely, it does not exist. But the search is what puts them on trains and makes them hike through giant mountains and meet all of these really interesting characters. I feel like the search for just something is is a really powerful way to organize a plot, especially if that thing is unearthly or supernatural or or holy. 
like like these these things that make it feel like what you're after is actually an impossible challenge that to me connects with the picaresque in in a, in a in a way we're going to take a quick break to say that if you like this book and want to read something similar check out pinocchio by carlo collodi pinocchio is a classic picaresque tale about a puppet brought to life by a carpenter the puppet goes through many trials and adventures, is nearly chopped up, is caught on fire, and eventually eaten by a whale. If you like Kipling's thrilling romp with interesting characters through new and exciting places, you'll love Pinocchio's cast of talking animals, tricksters, and wise old spiritual guides. You can listen to our discussion of the story in Genre Podcast Episode 4, and you can listen to the story itself through Audible. We have partnered with Audible.com to bring you a free 30-day trial and an audiobook of your choice. Go to our link, which is audibletrial.com slash genrepodcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash genrepodcast. Let's get back to the episode. So does does any part of this story feel like, like an impossible challenge, like like in a really romantic sense? I mean, like whether Kim becoming a full-fledged spy or, or the llama's quest for enlightenment— or, like, otherwise, do, does the book make all of this feel very grounded and attainable for you? It does feel very romantic. The characters are going off on adventures, and they're kind of spurred on by ideas or prophecies that they believe in. And I wonder, is the prophecy of the, the, the arrow, the river of the arrow, is that a similar prophecy as to what Kim was given as a toddler, which was his life will change completely when he finds a red bull on a green field. The llama, the llama follows his story of the Buddha. Kim follows his own story that he got from his father. Both eventually, at the end of the book, they find what they are looking for. Throughout Kim, reading everyone's reactions to the llama's journey, it, it does feel impossible. Everyone reacts to him like he's a kooky old man. Everyone believes his search is a wild goose chase. I think that's sharp to, to draw a connection between the llama's journey and Kim's prophecy. Both are really looking for something that's, that's more abstract. But in both journeys, I think it ends with something quite mundane. The Red Bull on a green field actually describes a military flag. And the llama receives his enlightenment beside some random river. One thing I, I did like about the llama's journey was how he kept on asking people if they knew the river that he's talking about. I thought there was these great moments of like cross-cultural miscommunication, because most often the people who he would ask would be Hindu, and they'd like point him towards the Ganges. And the llama, he's just not having it. <laughs> we have the two characters who need to find something. That's a great way to start with the book, and they can help each other find what they're looking for. And no one else really believes in what they're looking for. That's why they have such a strong friendship. It bonds them together. And they're a bit roguish in this way because they're, they're following these prophecies even in the midst of all this doubt. Well, other people's doubt. They have no doubt themselves. The spiritual and identity journeys that these characters go on seem more central in this book than the spy stuff, even though it is kind of the, the foundational spy book. And it's not so heavy on the spy feel, I feel like, until Kim finds that Red Bull and, you know, he, he officially starts spy school. But still, I feel like this book is definitely experimenting with and establishing some really important central spy tropes, which we, I well, I expect we will see. 
through the rest of Spy Month. Let's count them up. We have a lot of disguises, both Kim dressing up or dyeing his skin to change his race. We have him adopting different languages. But then we also have various people throughout the book who are masquerading as like odd job type people, but they're actually spies. Spies lurking around every corner. We also have fun ways of giving secret information, including secret codes, some of which are spoken in strange sentences, or some are written and hidden inside objects, including hollowed out walnuts. The walnuts, yeah. And there's this hint that things could really be hidden anywhere. Like when Maboob got too drunk, he's trying to sleep with a prostitute named the Flower of Delight. And it says, quote, they fell to drinking perfumed brandy against the law of the prophet, and Mabub grew wonderfully drunk, and the gates of his mouth were loosened, and he pursued the flower of delight with the feet of intoxication until he fell flat among the cushions. This lady is in cahoots with a mysterious baddie, and together they search his belongings as they say, quote, this was no common thief that turned over letters, bills, and saddles. No mere burglar who ran a little knife sideways into the soles of Mabub's slippers or picked the seams of the saddlebags so deftly. So I think what they're saying here is these people are spies. Kim is taken by his spy handler to a special shop in town, which when Kim first sees it, he calls it a wonder house. They arrive to this house in the dark and they have to hold up a lamp. So here we go, quote, As the light swept them, there leapt out from the walls a collection of Tibetan devil dance masks hanging above the fiend-embroidered draperies of those ghastly functions, horned masks, scowling masks, and masks of idiotic terror. In a corner, a Japanese warrior, mailed and plumed, menaced him with a halberd, and a score of lances and kandas and katars gave back the unsteady gleam. End quote. I love this place. And actually, I think it's really interesting that this, this spy training school is actually filled with masks. What does that remind me of? Game of Thrones, when when Arya Stark, yeah, when she goes and yeah, she, all the different masks. Anyways, the, this place is, is like is like a place of, of wonders. We actually we actually get this great description of a phonograph, but it's told from Kim's perspective, and Kim He's lived on the street so for his whole life. So he's never really like heard of a phonograph before. He's never seen a phonograph before. So it's this totally derealized description of a magic box with disembodied demonic wailing voices coming from it. And uh, Kipling really makes recorded music sound just truly awful. Yeah, c- coming across this new technology kind of makes it more mystical. And seeing the masks staring back at him, just like the Game of Thrones moments, also makes it seem really, gives it a magic feeling. And the way you just described it, actually, it reminds me of of Kill Bill when Uma Thurman goes to that the sushi shop. It's a regular sushi shop with two bickering chefs, and Uma is pretending to just be some dumb tourist until she finally says, I need some steel to kill rats. And they say, oh, those must be big rats. She says, I'm looking for Hattori Hanzo steel. And so the chef, his face turns very serious and dark. So they turn out the lights, they shut down the shop, 
and they climb into the attic. And when they open the trap door into the attic, it's candlelit and the walls are lined with these priceless, deadly samurai swords. Kill Bill. Yeah, that scene is so good. I think training montages are, are super important for revenge movies. And I guess they kind of overlap with like the getting the equipment montage or like the, the getting dressed montage even. But come to think of it, we we really don't get too many training scenes in spy stories. I mean, when I think of Bond, he's already a badass. The most training he usually gets is a primer on the, the new tech that he's getting from Q. And I think it's expected that whatever training he gets in the beginning will be the little thing that allows him to escape from the big baddie at the, the very end of the movie. Hmm. What you pointed out, though, when he gets the new tech from Q is very right. And I think we will see that as well. That wonderful, sorry, that wonderful moment of awe or that moment of wonder where you get the new gadget. It, the wall opens up and you see something that's impossible finally realized. Very cool stuff. And to talk about revenge a little bit, for example, Kill Bill, you know, after all of her training, she finally gets that five-finger death punch to kill Bill. And in our follow-up spy stories, I'm thinking they will be quite a bit different from Kim. There will be these, the gadgets, the cool spy stuff, but their plot, I think, will feel different because there's no overt revenge plot for spies, and especially not in Kim, there's spy training because Kim is structured like a building's Roman. And I don't think we'll see spy training in many of these other stories because they are going to be pretty fully established, whereas Kim has to go from street kid to very well-ordered, well-trained spy. It's a similar question of focus, I think, as when we talked about that first Conan the Barbarian story, which is called The Phoenix on the Sword. Because in that story, we start with a very well-established Conan. He's already king. He's already jaded. We don't see him work his way up. And with Bond, I think we'll start the same way. We'll see. We'll just see Bond being a badass, being Bond. There's no how Bond became Bond. We'll get a little bit of tension with he can't lead a normal life because he's an international spy, but there's no how did I get here? How did I become who I am? But with Kim, we're starting out from scratch, from the beginning. And we're getting someone building himself up, proving himself, training himself, and just committing to being a full-fledged spy. Very different from book after book, Bond goes to a new country, new situation, does what Bond does. Different story altogether, I think. I think in general storytelling terms, Kipling made the right choice here in showing this process. I mean, just speaking in generalities, I'm much more interested in seeing a character start from zero, sacrifice great time and energy to overcome whatever their personal challenge is. I'm much more interested in seeing that than watching like a beefed out character who's more or less entitled to the big positive win outcome of the story, especially if it's by virtue of them having already proved themselves in a setting that's outside of the, the story that I'm reading. Like if it happens off off script, then I don't care. Something about this process makes characters feel more relatable, and I think, generally speaking, it's why most people root for Spider-Man much more than they root for Superman. Ah, ah, but counterpoint, I do love the coziness and ease of picking up a, a Sherlock book or a Bond book. Yes, they have already established themselves, and most of it happened off-camera, but still a fun ride every time. 
And I, I think, though, we like Batman and Spider-Man more than Superman, maybe because, well, Superman has no frailties. He's basically invincible, and the only thing that can stop him is glowing gemstones, basically. That's not believable. Most Batman issues, though, except for some of the Frank Miller stuff and a few others, Batman's already fully established. And same with Spider-Man, except for when they, they reprise it and give you a new issue one where Peter Parker's starting out, he's pretty much already fully established. And we just see them in new situations with new bad guys. But I think this is maybe one reason why Kim got the, I think the Nobel or the Pulitzer and is considered, you know, high highbrow literature as opposed to Bond or some of the Marvel characters. Because Kim is a creation, kind of almost like a raw creation of a new character over the course of an entire novel. So it's, so it's literally novel. And through this, the characters, his his character or who he is, is vulnerable on every page because it's constantly being formed. And Kim constantly says, who is Kim? Kim doesn't know who he is. And that's that's the main tension of the book. It's not really the spy stuff. It's more who is Kim. And that's why it's a well, that why it, that's why it has that appeal that we talked about, I think. So the other difference is Bond or Superman as a character or or an identity is never vulnerable. His Bond's life is always in danger. His life is in danger, but his character, or his character, or our understanding of who Bond is, that is never threatened or it's never at risk. It's never compromised. Yeah, I really can't wait to start reading the Bond novels with you to see this picture in action. You know, I do think that the newest Bond films do intentionally play with our perceptions of Bond. I mean, like whether we're talking about Skyfall with Bond disclosing to Javier Bardem's character some like bisexual history or like the kind of emotional pain we see in Spectre regarding Bond being orphaned. But I do think that you're right. These examples are a series that's really trying to innovate after so many same, same iterations. The examples I brought out, they aren't the rule, they're the exception. I do think, though, that seriality is the main factor here. Like, when you have one volume to tell the story, you really have to tell it differently than if you're sticking with the same character for a dozen volumes. With these serial books, it's nicer to just pick one up and jump on the plane. You know, I don't want to have to deal with a unfamiliar character, new, brand new stuff, all vulnerability all the time when I'm getting on a plane. Give me, give me the Bond book when I'm on the train, when I'm on the plane. But something actually that you just mentioned reminds me of another parallel between Kim and Bond because Bond does get vulnerable, kind of, with the Bond girls. That is, he knows he can never settle down. So even if he actually starts to fall in love and want this settled down, comfortable life, he he has to leave it because he will always be a danger to that other person. That is a nice character building tension, I think, for Bond. Even if it doesn't change that much book to book, it's still still good tension. And I think we see that. I think we see that with Kim in this book. Are you, are you referring to Kim's would-be love interest near the end of the book? I don't think we introduced her that well at the beginning of the episode, so maybe we should cover what happens. So they're at the end of the book. The baddies have been caught, and the head lady, the head lady of the village, she's like she's like the primary person of this town. She has multiple husbands, who she has carry the llama around in a cart when he gets sick. So this lady, she makes a pass at Kim, 
And here's a here's a moment from the book. Quote, my husbands are also out gathering wood. Then she drew a handful of walnuts from her bosom, split one neatly, and began to eat. Kim affected blank ignorance. Now she speaks again. Dost thou not know the meaning of the walnut, priest? She says coyly. And then she hands him these half-shell walnuts. So Kim, Kim's playing coy. He's pretending to be a priest's apprentice, but the idea of the walnut is is in its resemblance to a scrotum. So, so that's what she's going for here. But something happens here uh, for the first time, maybe the only time in this book where Kim breaks his character. He's he he reveals to someone else that he's actually in disguise. So, first. He says to the woman that where he comes from, people use almonds, not walnuts, which is to subtly, subtly respond to, to her question about whether he understands or not, to, to hint that he does understand what she's doing. But then she gets angry at him for rejecting her. And she tells him that, you know, she's not some, you know, she's not just some village lady. She's a woman of the world. And she she tells him her history about how she used to be a Christian to speak English and live in a in a in a settlement with these English people. So this is the moment where Kim breaks character. He actually kisses her and says goodbye to her in English. And yeah, yeah, I, I feel like this is a powerful moment because this is the only time where we see Kim, I don't know, giving something up, I guess. Anyways, so earlier you mentioned Bond. How do you feel like this kind of scene relates to someone like Bond or even spy fiction in general? Mm, Bond, the walnut, walnuts galore. I feel like Kim has got to keep moving on. Not unlike an international spy, not unlike the dark cowboy down from the hills. The spy and the cowboy have got a job to do, and so does Kim, even though they might all be tempted by this cozy life or by love. They can't settle down because they promised their country something or they've promised, well, higher power something. And there are too many risks still out there. There's too many of these these bad villains still at large. Yeah, I suppose my mental image of a spy is always like devoid of family life. Though I suppose The Secret Agent by Conrad didn't exactly follow that point. In that book, he had a wife, but even so, she had no idea about his double loyalties. So let's keep an eye on the whole spy and family life thread moving forward. Yeah, we've been contrasting Bond and Kim, but really, if we want the exact opposite of Bond, it's got to be Verloc from The Secret a- Secret Agent, who's, who's referred to as uh, being thoroughly domesticated and is just a terrible spy because he's lazy and would really rather just spend every day at home, just sitting in his slippers and drinking tea. Since you mentioned the baddies, I have to say, they didn't seem very villainous to me. Mm, the baddies and Kim. There's the... I'll think back to the secret agent for a second, because that that villain is the secret agent himself. He's the one who's got to plant the bomb. The villains bond, they're all cool. Each one is a reinvention of the villain. Like, one, you know, they've got eye patches, they have different parts of their bodies replaced with gold... But the villains in Kim are pretty bumbling. One is a Frenchman and one is a Russian man. They don't really seem to know what they're doing. 
And that's what I picked up on anyway. Yeah, maybe on an interpersonal level, they were they were a bit repugnant, but mostly they just seem like minor bit actors in, in this great game that they're playing. Okay, so then our main villains are just kind of minor bit actors or pawns coming out because of a bigger tension. They're just being used by the tension, which is the war between Great Britain and Russia. But, I mean, so are our heroes, too. I mean, Kim, Babu, Mabu, Bali, these, these are all just random people, really. We're all just random people in a game. But Kim and his friends, we don't care about the, the villains too much. They suck. But Kim and his friends, we get to know, and we like them a lot. They are they're good at what they do. They work hard. They're sometimes a little bumbling, too, but they always come through in the end. And really important, they... They're good to people. They're kind to people that they meet. These two villains, though, they're really just a couple dunderheaded walnuts. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you look at the differences, Cam and his friends, they get by with this deep, intimate knowledge of India. They know the diverse peoples. They know how to survive in the landscape, the different religions, how to talk to people, how even to manipulate people. But I think that almost every interaction that these baddies have is them blundering through cultural faux pas after faux pas. Hmm, so kind of like the drummer boy. Maybe they're being set up intentionally by Kipling to kind of be hated. It's easy to hate them. It was easy to hate the drummer boy. Also, they're, they're pretty, we don't get much of that, much of them anyway. They're a little bit cardboard and they're just stupid. They're even bad at being spies, to be honest. They fail at every at every corner they they're bad at disguising themselves and worse they actually they lose their briefcase of precious documents it was their only job was to keep control of the documents and they lose it yeah so how that happens is they mistake the llama for just some common street vendor i guess and try to buy his like most precious drawing that he has which the llama of course refuses to sell and they rip it here's a quote they say, he wishes it now for money. The llama shook his head slowly and began to fold up the wheel. The Russian, on his side, saw no more than an unclean old man haggling over a dirty piece of paper. He drew out a handful of rupees and snatched half-jestingly at the chart, which tore in the llama's grip. So one thing leads to another, and these guys end up punching the llama in the face, which is like the most offensive the most deeply offensive thing you could do to all the all the people who are carrying their baggage. You know, they're all religious people. They they know don't punch the llama in the face. Don't <laughs> hit the llama. And it's especially offensive because the llama is trying to communicate to them with the help of Kim why he won't give it, because it's not just that he wants to keep it for himself. It's actually a devotional drawing that he is going to give to the temple. So it's already promised to the temple. They try to take it, they rip it, a fight starts, and the whole thing, like you said, is offensive, and it's so offensive that people actually start fleeing, because if you hit a llama in the face, the gods are going to get angry, because he's a holy man. So people start running, they start throwing rocks at the Frenchman and the Russian, or they just try to get out of there to avoid gods throwing rocks down from the mountain, basically. So these, these, these bumbling villains are so bad that they've actually disrupted order on the whole mountain. And because they've hit the llama, Kim just jumps on them and beats the hell out of them. Yeah, you know, I think this story is a good example of of like a book that's a whole lot of world building and then it just leads up to really only just one actual moment of violence. 
Well, I really enjoyed this book. If we weren't kicking off a new theme for November of spy fiction, I would say that we should just go right back to Kipling and read the hell out of Jungle Book. But I think it's your turn to pick. So, Bob, what's next? The man with the golden touch. You mean King Midas? If King Midas was chasing after a man in an Aston Martin. I think I'm, I think I'm a little confused. <laughs> okay, well, because November is spy month, we've got to go with our most famous spy of all, Bond. Wait, did you mean the man James. with the golden gun? Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. Okay, Amber? I'm. I think that's Austin Powers. Okay, I've, I've, <laughs> I've been waiting my whole life to finally read these, these Bond books. Which ones are first? Well, Zach, slip on your white gloves and fill your pockets with shrimp. I mean gambling chips. We're reading Casino Royale. Hoo-hoo, dance and dice. All right, talk to you later, Bob. Talk to you later, Zach. Zach.